guys, it's Melissa. Since we're an independent podcast, your support means the absolute world, whether that's on social media, in a podcast review, or a word of mouth recommendation. If you've been enjoying this podcast and would like to take it a step further, I now have a support feature where you can contribute a one-time donation at whichever price you'd like. Click the link in the episode description to learn more. Thanks guys, now enjoy the show. Welcome to Mimosa Sisterhood, a podcast that celebrates women. Hello, beautiful humans. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Melissa, and you're listening to Mimosa Sisterhood, where we pop bottles and celebrate women's stories over a glass of bubbly or wine or liquor or booze or beer, or sometimes just full-blown sober because the hard shit's not for everybody, and that's okay. It's been a hot minute since I've been on the mic. I went on a lovely vacation during the end of November and decided to give myself a little bit of time off, but I am so happy to be back and kicking off the month of December with an amazing interview with our newest guest, Tula B. Strong. We have an Everyday Woman episode for you today, and oh my God, it is amazing. Tula B. Strong is a performance artist who weaves dancing, music, and faith all into one beautiful storytelling experience. I was very lucky to cross paths with Tula on the internet, yay to technology, and I am so happy that I got to actually sit on the mic with her, hear about her life story, and literally be mind blown by some of the most beautiful messages I've ever heard in my life. I have told you guys many times on this podcast that I'm not a very religious person, but if anybody could ever sway that opinion, it's Tula B. Strong. Oh my gosh. I am still recovering from the energy bomb that I endured during this episode with Tula. And I am so excited for you guys to hear it. And I have no doubt that it's going to leave a very beautiful, lasting impression on your heart as well. We're going to get into it in the next couple of minutes, but I just wanted to let you guys know I have a very exciting announcement that I have released two of my newest podcast merchandise items in the shop. They are live on the website now. I am absolutely in love. One of them is a 15-ounce coffee mug, and the other is a gray pullover hoodie, both which feature my newest art illustration. It is so absolutely gorgeous and amazing and perfect. You have to see it. And the hoodie is amazing. I have been wearing it since the day it arrived at my house. I have not taken it off (laughs) other than washing it a couple of times. It is just perfect. I am so excited about this hoodie. I highly recommend. It's $32. It does not shrink. So whatever size you purchase is the size you're going to have forever. And I cannot tell you how large the smile is on my face as I curl up on my couch in that sweatshirt with a glass of wine every night at the end of the day. It's just life-changing. 
If you haven't seen it yet, head by my website, mimosasisterhood.com, click on the pod shop and take a look at my newest products. I'm so excited about them. And maybe this is the perfect opportunity for you to get yourself a Christmas present. So check it out. Super stoked. Tell me what you think and uh, tell your friends, tell your mom, tell your baby, tell your kids and spread the word about Mimosa Sisterhood podcast newest merchandise launch because it's literally fabulous. Okay, cool. Other than that, you know the deal. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite streaming platform. And if you haven't yet, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the greatest way for us to find new listeners that don't know that we exist. And it's an amazing way to support the show because the more ratings and reviews that we get increases our chances of being featured in the new and noteworthy section on Apple Podcasts. All right, that's it. That's all you've got for me today. I cannot wait for you to hear this episode. You're going to love it. So grab that glass of wine and say hello to Tula Be Strong. Oh my God, everybody. I am very excited to finally introduce you to our new guest, Tula B. Strong. Hi, everyone. I'm so, so excited to be here talking with you today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Just to like give everybody a quick background of how you ended up here. Um, what is that freaking magazine called? Um, Voyage LA. <laughs> Voyage, Voyage LA. LA. Yeah. <laughs> You'd think that would be like the first bullet point on my notes. <laughs> so I was browsing through this like digital online magazine called Voyage LA and I actually was featured in it once before. So I had a familiarity with the website and knew that it's like an amazing place to see like what other locals are doing, what cool projects they have going on, like what's what's going on in their lives. And I sporadically will just like browse through there, see who's on it stumbled upon your interview, read through your interview, and was just like, oh my god, what a special woman, what a special story, like, there's just so much to unpack here, and I just instantly wanted to learn more about you and hear your life story and your perspective and your journey and, like, all the wild turns and how it got you to where you are today, so reached out, was like, please come on the podcast. And you did. And now we're here. So thank you so much. Thank you. I I never would have expected that to happen either. So it was a really cool email to get to see that in my email and and to be able to join. So yay. So cool. Okay. Well, I feel like it's so much better for the guests to introduce themselves. So I want to let you just like take the mic for a minute and just tell everybody who you are, what you're doing right now, like where you're from, all the little bits about you that we want to catch up on. For sure. Okay. So my name is Tula B. Strong. I am a performance artist who is really focused on weaving dance, storytelling through music and faith. So what that like physically looks like is that I create performances that include dance and then this experimental music theater and these performances deal with, you know, the everyday occurrences of people of color in the United States and beyond and then these conversations of love and of wellness and healing and faith and spirituality. 
Um, so I'm an artist. <laughs> what is it? What's the word? Um, short story, story short, whatever, however that phrase is. Long story short, I am an artist. There we go. Um, and I, in addition to being an artist, I am an educator. And so I am currently a lecturer slash, you know, professor in dance and performance studies at Cal State Fullerton in their African-American studies department. So cool. I actually <laughs> somehow missed that about you. I didn't realize that you are currently a professor at the college. Yeah, you know, what? it was because I think when that interview was written, everything was still like in the works. Uh -huh. So this is my first official semester teaching there. And I am like in love. I adore it so much. So Okay, a couple of questions, which this is so premature. I was planning on getting into this stuff later, but I just have to know. Like, one, what is it like working with college students? Yeah. And then two, are is there like a COVID thing happening? Are you like in person? Good questions. Okay, so I'll start with the COVID one first. Um, currently, I have one class that's online and then one class that's in person. And so what I've experienced, at least at my institution, is that students are given the choice of whether they're going to take their classes online or whether they want to take it in person. So there's like flexibility for students. And what I've experienced from my, the people who are in my classes that the ones who are online definitely want to be online, but then the people who are in person are like, they don't want to be doing online school anymore. Mm -hmm. um, which I understand, you know, I understand. I feel like it's, it can be hard. It can be a tough thing to be online and away from that community. I understand both sides. Totally. And then let's see. In terms, the other part of this was what's it like to Being, be working, working with college kids? Yeah. I think it's the perfect age. I really love this age because I feel like these are like young people who have ideas form. Like they mm -hmm. kind of have a sense of themselves or like they're getting more confident in who they are. And so I feel like I'm in um but also impressionable too so i'm currently i'm teaching this class called pan-african dance and movement so we look at black dance across the diaspora um which means that we like look at dance forms in all the different parts of africa in addition to dance forms in like the in Afro-Latinidad and the Caribbean, as well as in America and concert dance, experimental dance. And so what I really love about my students is that I get to really like inspire them mm -hmm. in these creative pursuits, you know, and I don't expect them to become choreographers or to become dancers, but I'm hoping that they become like these arts enthusiasts and they now have this way of speaking about the arts and like a new way of understanding it and they can talk to other people about the arts and so far I feel like my students are eating it up cross my fingers <laughs> I hope they I hope they like it um also I'm a kind of a non-traditional professor I'm kind of like you know we I came from a low-income community I came from I'm the first in gener first generation college student, so my parents didn't go to four year colleges, and so I'm really passionate about like things that we do in the school system should have some applicability outside of it. You know, like mm -hmm. I want if when I was in college, I remember thinking I want the work that I write that I create to be able to be understood by my mom or by my dad or by 
friends who didn't go to college, you know? And so I structure my classes that way too, that my students have the opportunity to create work that is like beyond the academy. So we do social media post assignments or like um, I give them a chance to do podcasts or videos rather than papers. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I feel like I'm talking so much. No, you're okay. (laughs) I love that. You want to know a funny thing that I might have already said this on a podcast episode of mine before, but like I have to bring this up. Yes. (laughs) One of my college classes, I went to San Francisco State University and Mm -hmm. I was in I don't remember what the class was right now, but it was sociology related because that was my major. And our professor gave us the option to do something similar where we could do something different than writing an essay. And I don't remember if he gave us like a list of like what those things should be, but I took it upon myself to whip out some paints and a canvas and I painted a mural which like mind you I have absolutely zero painting skills or experience (laughs) whatsoever and I turned I thought it was great I had like construction paper going and like the sparkle glitter and all this stuff and I turned it in and (laughs) like the next time I was in class he like pulled me aside and he's like so I'm gonna need you to actually like do a follow-up one or two pager to go with this uh (laughs) painting that you submitted because uh like not up to par oh Oh, no and I was like damn it I thought that thing was good so embarrassing I'm like great I failed to like be creative and have freedom to do your own and then they were like uh actually I guess that doesn't apply to everybody (laughs) you're gonna now have to write a one or two pager on what this is that you just submitted Oh, man. I'm sorry that happened. <laughs> oh, no. It was funny. I was just like, uh-oh. I, but, you know, it's funny, though, is I am a writer. So I probably mm-hmm. would have just, like, nailed the essay if that was, like, if I just took the essay. But instead, yeah. I was like, oh, forget the essay. We're going to just paint something up today on a Saturday. <laughs> oh, man. Good times. Okay. Well, you had said a few things in the past couple of minutes that were like the perfect segue where you started to bring up your parents and like where you would come from. And that was definitely one of the things that stood out to me in your interview was just learning more about your mom and where she came from and how she immigrated to the United States. And I would just love for you to tell the audience just like a little bit about her story and then like your upbringing once you were here, uh, born in the world in the LA area. Yeah, absolutely. So my mom, I was raised by my mom. Um, my parents got separate or divorced when I was young, like eight. So I was raised by my mom. And she came from a country which is in the west of Africa called Liberia. And it's a country that went through war in the 1980s and beyond. And she, I feel like in reflecting on her experiences, she is technically considered a refugee right she came to this country when i believe it made there's either 17 or 16 years old but i know for sure it was on her birthday that she came to america um and by you know like by the grace of god she had a sister who was already in the southern california region and so she stayed with her but she had to um leave her home and didn't actually expect to stay here as long as she has, which is, let's see, mm, I'm trying to think, calculate how many years it probably has been since she's been back. Um, I would say at least 30 to 35 years that she mm-hmm. hasn't 
um, been able to go back. And so during the war, her family was targeted. Um, and she, during that process of like, during the events of those times, she lost her mother at a very young age. She lost her dad later on throughout the sequence of the war, um, her older brother. I think it, it shook up a lot of her life, yeah. you know? And so I remember when I, or she tells us all the time different stories about when she was a young girl or when, or during things that happened during that time. Um, but one thing that she really, really spoke to me that like I think of often is the saying that she would say something along the lines of like, you can have like money taken away from you. You can have your car, you can have your home, you can have all these things, but like no one could take away your education. And mm -hmm. she told me that she was told that by her father, you know? And so it's, it's really crazy to think that like, my grandfather would have been saying this to my mother years, I don't know, long time before the Civil War ever happened in the country, but then it kind of came to pass, you know, mm -hmm. that she she lost almost everything, you know, yeah. and thank God she still has, let's see, at least three siblings for, um, like that we were raised by who are in mm -hmm. the area, um, in like the Southern California area. So that is my mom. Um, wow. She's a Liberian woman. She is a, I would call her feisty, very forward <laughs> thinking. She's short, too, <laughs> but beautiful. I love her so much. I love her so much. Um, I love my dad as well, extraordinarily. He um, is from Michigan. He's African-American. And um, yeah. Am I, should I keep going? Or I mean, I? yeah, I mean, the mic is yours. You can take it for three hours if you want. Um, <laughs> I was curious, though, one thing that just like popped into mind was when your mother left Liberia and came here, do you happen to know, like, if that was a, a extremely difficult process? Like, was she on like a last plane sort of thing? Or was it by like, I don't know how that process would work if it's a travel to boat then to yeah. I don't know do you happen to know anything about that you know what I actually I've never actually asked her the the literal specifics of like the trap I do know this I do know that I believe her father did not tell her she was necessarily going to like didn't really prepare her mm -hmm. um that she was going to leave forever right yeah. I think he was just telling her that she was going to go on a trip or don't quote me, but I feel that's what yeah. I have gotten from different stories over the years. And she came to the San Bernardino, which mm -hmm. is in the, you know, an hour east of L.A. And I do know that because she lost her mom a few years earlier, that she kind of wasn't, you know, wasn't engaged, you know. Like totally. She, was, she finished her senior year in in high school over here in the states uh -huh. um but didn't want to go to her prom didn't want to do like any of those like high school activities because you know that's a lot of that's really traumatic oh totally and like also happened. like the culture shock like yeah. being in san bernardino there's probably so many different factors that were happening like being ripped out of your hometown saying goodbye to your family that you will maybe never see again yeah. being thrown into a high school of in a culture and a world of people that are completely foreign to you literally 
and then being like yeah let me go shop at macy's for a dress for my prom like (laughs) hell no (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely Absolutely. yeah i could not imagine that is really amazing though that she did have a sister here that she got Mm -hmm. to meet and sort of get like the onboarding experience of the United States and just have somebody that could be there as a support system for her as she like navigated this new life that she was suddenly going to have to start living. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, (sighs) definitely. Her, my aunt already lived here in San Bernardino. I guess my aunt had came on an exchange program to the United States. So she came prior to the war starting. And so she had started her life here, went to college out in the Southern California region. So that is like, um, you know, I'm grateful that my aunt was here settled and so that my mom could come and stay with her and get herself, you know, or get things together, learn how to navigate. Oh, man. Well, then you were born. (laughs) (laughs) Or you you have siblings too, right? Yes, I do have siblings. I have a younger sister and then I have two stepbrothers. Very nice. Yeah. So you had already mentioned in this podcast right now and in your interview that you guys grew up, I don't know like what how you would describe it in your own words if it was like middle to lower class or something like that, mm-hmm. but the importance of education in your household and your mother yeah. having like brought that sort of principle from her dad um and really kind of like making that known in your family and kind of pushing that or not pushing it but letting it be like sort of a universal thing that you would all strive towards in life yeah and you absolutely nailed that one on the head (laughs) because you have gone on to do some incredible things you've gone to such great schools you've had so many amazing opportunities to just like kick ass in this educational world and now you're working at a college so like how unbelievable is that I can't even imagine how proud your mom is of you and just excited that everything that you know she'd kind of like hoped and dreamed for for her kids like panned out at least for your life path like that's unbelievable yes and I feel like that's an interesting story as well because even my mom, even though my mom was like a huge person to like education, continue to like do well in school, she wasn't always, she didn't have the tools to actually help me, you know, and to do those, like she didn't, wasn't able necessarily to sit down with me for homework or understood what the homework was saying. So I kind of had to figure that out for myself and I'm the first, the oldest in my household. And so... When I was in middle school, I, funny story, I transferred out from, I went to like this small little Christian school when I was, it was like all black people. It was like a black Christian school when I was in elementary school and I transferred out into public school and they put me as in my elective into band and oh, I did not like it. I was, I had to, yeah, I had to play the clarinet and it just wasn't hit it just 
and just in it it wasn't it wasn't doing what it was supposed to have been done you know it just wasn't <laughs> that's just like such a band instrument though like i don't know a single soul on earth that plays the clarinet and i couldn't tell you what band a clarinet is even used in today yes you know you know i wish i had a cooler <laughs> instrument maybe i would have stayed yeah. in that class but i mean maybe it was destiny that i didn't because mm -hmm. Um, after I just wasn't I did not like it. So I think I asked to switch my classes and they put me into a um, program called AVID. And so AVID is a college readiness program. And it's really about helping students from like underserved communities to prepare for college, know how to get to college and and have all the tools that they need for college. And so I think that like, if it wasn't for that readiness program, I would not know. I would not. I just like would not have had the opportunities that I had or know about mm -hmm. them or know how to access them. Mm -hmm. And so I remember during my journey in like middle school and high school, I never I didn't know about Ivy League schools. I didn't mm -hmm. I thought I was going to go to like probably Cal State San Bernardino or somewhere nearby my home which I think those are wonderful amazing schools I'm working at a Cal State so I really love Cal mm -hmm. States yeah. um but I that's I that's all I imagined for myself I didn't think I didn't not in a million years that I think that I would be able to go to like an Ivy or something like that and so once I made it into high school it was it was kind of just like the perfect storm of different things coming together it was like a time where um there was more initiatives for students who were low income to go to high achieving colleges like princeton and harvard and all these different places and it was yeah i think that there's it was just more accessible i mm -hmm. i somehow i found out about a program called Questbridge, which pairs um, students from low income backgrounds with high achieving colleges and gives them full um, full scholarships to go there. And I decided I would apply and I ended up getting into Princeton through that program. And never again, never, never in a million years thought that would have happened to me. Um, but that that happened. And I fun fact, I actually I which is a really crazy really crazy thinking about like how i grew up and and the community i came from and we didn't have the best we were like considered the underdogs of all the high schools around mm -hmm. us like we did not have things we didn't have sidewalks for and at our high school there's chickens and horses and things around us but um so we were just like a, a pretty underserved community um but even still, I ended up getting into Harvard as well when I was a high school student. So I chose between those two schools and ended up going to Princeton when I was, you know, a, um, after my senior year of high school. That is so cool. <laughs> like, what did your mom say when you told her? <laughs> I think she was, I remember her probably being excited. She had this little scream that she does. <laughs> when she's excited. So I'm pretty sure she would have done that scream and, you know, had a big smile on her face. And do you think she was also like partially sad that you would have to like move away? Oh, no. Oh, really? 
<laughs> no, my mom has always been like, go and explore and yeah. find your own and been like raising me and my little sister to be independent women. So cool. Know? So yeah, she loved that we were going. That's amazing. <laughs> That's so cool. And so like freaking Princeton, like you show up, you're there, you got in, you're like, holy heck, how did this happen? You're probably only like 18 years old. So still a fresh little baby just leaving the coop for the first time. And now you're at an Ivy League. Like, was it everything you expected? Was it terrifying? Like, was it great, horrible, bad, amazing? Like, what was that like? Good question. I always speak about this in like two different categories, right? So on the first hand, academically, wonderful. I felt like Princeton was a heaven. Um, I really enjoyed my academic experience there. So I ended up going there. Um, They had a program prior to the official start of campus for students who were coming from low-income backgrounds. And it was called FSI. And you got to go and take some classes before the official start of the, I think we were a semester system. So before the official start of the semester, um, get to understand where things are. And so I went to that program i got to take a math class a like english class and there might have been something else and get to know some um one person who is still my best friend to this day i met her in that program um and so that felt like it prepared me and gave me the confidence that program specifically felt like it gave me the confidence to be at Princeton because I was doing considerably well mm-hmm. um, in the classes. And so I felt like, okay, like I I guess I'm prepared for this. Like yeah. I could do this. I can handle my own in comparison to people who might have had different experiences from me and had more like, you know, support in their academic journeys, but I'm handling my own and I think I could do this. So after that program, I like there's just so many cool things that I I got within my academic journey like I um ended up majoring in comparative literature so that meant I had to study two languages so I studied Spanish and Portuguese and then they also saw dance as a language so I ended up um pursuing dance too as part of my major and I thought like this is just so cool. Like what school allows you like sees dance as a language and allows me to really like do that and also allowed me to do a creative thesis as part of my final thesis. And I just thought it was amazing. I think going there and seeing how much worth they put into the creative pursuits like dance and how much Princeton valued it. I was like, oh, maybe I like, I should value the arts more Mm -hmm. too, you know? Like it's not just something that you shoo away or something that like, it's something that is worthy of attention and that deserves respect. And I felt like that institution gave the performing arts all the respect that I feel like it deserves. So that was absolutely amazing. Okay, so that's my academic (laughs) experience. (laughs) So it was really great because Princeton has great financial aid. So, and I know I, I had that scholarship, but they, just give anyone, like as long as you're underneath a specific um, income level, then you they will give you a full scholarship to their college um, and support if you need to. So I felt I didn't have to worry about money the whole time I was in, in school. So that was, you know, besides like small things for myself, but it was, it helped a ton because we 
I my parents will not be able to afford for me to go to college. Okay, that is academic. Socially, wow. <laughs> it was a doozy. It was a doozy. And I talk about this every time. Every time I get a chance to talk about Princeton, um, I, I share this experience because it was hard. Um, it felt like I grew up in a place that was really diverse. Like a lot of people were from like, is a pretty big immigrant community in the, in the Inland Empire section where I grew up at. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a large, um, Hispanic community, a good size of black people, um, Pacific Islanders, a, a, a significant Filipino population where I grew up, you know, so it was like really diverse, really amazing. And then in college, it it was my first time experiencing a pro- predominantly Caucasian community, but not just predominantly Caucasian. It was like a wealthy Caucasian community. Oh, yeah. And that was... I think the hardest part for me, and it wasn't just my experience, a lot of my, a lot of my friends at Princeton who came from um, low income or working class backgrounds are from, um, are where people of color had similar experiences that we felt that our cultures and our experiences and how we lived life as people of color wasn't really, um, what's the word? It wasn't, it wasn't, they didn't think about us, it felt like. They didn't make Princeton with us in mind. And you know what, I think it's because it felt so stark. Like people who came from wealthier backgrounds or from white wealthy backgrounds, like they were having the time of their lives. Like they were really living it up at Princeton. And it felt so stark to see like colleagues or classmates have that experience where me and a lot of my friends of color were like this feels this doesn't feel like we are welcome here you Mm -hmm. know like it wasn't this experience wasn't made for us in mind and I remember that at least the first two definitely the first year of college I couldn't even understand how to speak about it because it wasn't like someone was saying calling me the n-word it wasn't Mm -hmm. that it wasn't like um very um apparent act of racism right but it was just they it wasn't like something i couldn't even understand how to describe until like my second or third year i um i went to a high school a high Mm -hmm. school not even (laughs) ivy league college i went to a high school in santa Ana, orange county area that was a private school and it was i mean rampant white rich people just like swarmed and I am only half Mexican. People, ju- I'm presumed to just be a white woman, but I am half mm-hmm. Mexican. <laughs> and I didn't live in the Orange County area. I grew up in Long yeah. Beach. And to people in Orange County, they thought of Long Beach as the ghetto. That's where Snoop Dogg's from. Like, all the <laughs> yeah. things, you know? And so whenever I told people I lived in Long Beach, they were like, oh, like, oh, oh. Like, yeah. You know, like, I live in a nice-ass house in Long Beach. Like, what are you talking about, you know? <laughs> but yeah. there was another, like, I didn't even deal with a lot of issues. I'm not even talking about myself but felt like that was a good example of like how snooty people can be yeah but there was a huge community of mexican 
children, I mean, we were 14, 15 years old, that came from the Santa Ana area, and the majority of them were on scholarship. And Mm -hmm. I remember going through the whole four years of high school and feeling like so uncomfortable about this strange segregation that was happening in my own high school, where these like rich people just like ran the entire school ran it rampant like it was just like the it was like party city 24 7 of them just ruling the earth basically and then like whoever wasn't part of that was just like awkwardly hovering in the shadows yeah and it like was so obvious and I yeah. remember, and I, I mean, I was like in the middle of that kind of, like I wasn't on either end. I was like in the awkward middle class group of people that didn't fit, fit in in either side. But yeah. I remember like I had friends who they hated every minute of it because they yeah. just felt so out of place and so uncomfortable through the entire yeah. school experience. Yeah. And it like nobody was blatantly doing anything. It was just like the obviousness of not fitting into the mainstream. Yeah. Oh, that's a great way of like describing it that's like not fitting into the mainstream this mainstream culture yes absolutely absolutely and I remember when I was in college it was there was an initiative that kind of went out between a lot of the different ivies and I think it was called like I2M Princeton and then Harvard had I think Harvard might have started the I2M Harvard and it was all these students of color um, who were saying that like, no, we also belong here. This also should be a place for us. And so I just remember that happening at that time and a real push by students of color on our campus um, to to advocate for ourselves and advocate for what we needed to feel like we were welcome mm-hmm. on the campus. And I feel I'm not sure what has happened before or after I left. I feel like I'm sure that they did work and I'm sure they are working on making it a more welcome campus for all different um, in- people from all different income levels, from mm-hmm. all different backgrounds. But I remember that being really, really, a really stark experience. Like that's what I remember, <laughs> part of what I remember of Princeton. Um, and so I... I'm, so my first year, I was still trying to figure out what is this? Um, my what am second... I doing here? What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like in an alternate universe, but yeah. like I belong here and I made it yeah. here. Like, And also probably the strangeness of like experiencing what you're talking about, this uncomfortableness, yeah. but then also the other element of it of where you're like, but I got this opportunity. Like yeah. I can't not pass this up. I have to... Yeah figure out how to make peace with the weird energy I'm in while I'm here because I'm so grateful for being here to begin with. And so I'm sure that like struggle of like getting this huge opportunity that could for some could be once in a lifetime and then showing up and being like, wait, what? This is it. But I can't not like it because I got it. Like how Mm -hmm. weird that must be. Absolutely. I definitely remember feeling like, oh, maybe I shouldn't talk about this for a while because of like, you know, that phrase of don't bite the hand that feeds you, yeah. basically. Um, like, I was there on scholarship. They, I really, I did love my academic experience, but I, I think what helped that was that it wasn't just my experience. Obviously, not every student of color or every student from a low-income um, background will have the same experience there. But I did feel that when I was going through my journey in college enough of us had that experience mm-hmm. for us to feel like 
we had a community together to mm-hmm. speak about these things I figure out how to move forward um and for me I think I went through waves of how I ended up how dealing with it and making peace with it like I remember my sophomore year I was really angry and mm-hmm. I just wanted to get into advocacy in both I think more within my own artistic work I was like very adamant about advocacy work I think this also ran into my junior year as well my junior year I also felt like I was dealing with depression mm-hmm. um with everything going on and then my senior year kind of gratefully I had a better I kind of made peace with Mm -hmm. everything and felt like you know what I have a community of people of friends who love me and who care about me and I will focus on them and you know go off campus as much as I can and that's kind of how I ended up dealing with it but I I also you know so it's also this thing of like being a being from like my backgrounds as a low a lower income person as a person of color on the campus but then it was also being like just a young black woman on the campus and how how so for example I remember like I am a thick I am a thick girl or not I you know I go through waves with my weight but like at that time or during periods of that time I was thick I had hips I had you know big thighs and I remember walking around campus and never and seeing no one who had a body shape I could walk across the whole campus and not see anyone who had a body shape like I did, you know, or anyone who looked like I did. And so the the um, standard of beauty on the campus didn't feel like it fit it fit young black women. Mm-hmm. And I also felt that that was the experience that other black women, young black women on the campus felt too, that we were not attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's a a really jarring thing to experience as a young woman in your late teens your late early 20s to feel like you're in a place where you're just not considered attractive totally Um, and so it's i think it's the combination of all those things that made it quite difficult in the social aspect Mm -hmm. and yes i'm grateful Mm -hmm. that i went so grateful because i had so many opportunities that i would not have been given access to if I didn't go to Princeton like if I meet someone who's interested who's a young student of color who wants to go there I say you should definitely consider it because of the opportunities that are given but I wished when I would have went in that I would have had someone to tell me to prepare me like this is what you might face and here are ways that you can navigate it like find your people find your people find the people who care about you and tune into them get off campus if you need to mm-hmm. you know it's okay there's like whole communities Rutgers was uh just like 15 minutes away via train like mm-hmm. I love Newark New Jersey that I like it's a whole another community right outside of campus um not too far you could hop on the train in like 40 minutes 30 minutes you 30 40 minutes you might be there so I I didn't have anyone to tell me how to navigate it. But like when I meet younger people, I'm, I tell them that mm-hmm. like here's different ways that you can navigate it. So it wouldn't be so hard. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like I hope cross my fingers. The university is also focusing on that and trying to figure out ways that they can make it more inviting for everyone, no matter their background. Absolutely. I mean, how long ago was it that you were at Princeton? Let's see. I started in 2011. Okay. Would have been so my first year. Just with the ways in which the world has 
twisted and turned upside down over the past couple of years. Like, yeah. I feel like everybody's being held accountable, yeah. including Ivy League colleges. Yeah. So I feel like there's like a major just like that's going to be happening. And I th- feel like in the next, you know, decade even that we'll see a lot of change happening and a lot of positive change happening and Absolutely. just a lot of uh people having to like pay attention to things that weren't of concern to them before <laughs> absolutely and i remember as students we were pretty vocal about this like mm-hmm. i was vocal about my experiences i talked about it often um i talk about it whenever i'm in a princeton thing and so i think we were vocal about our experience hoping that it would bring change or better change and totally. positive and so i'm hopeful that it can do that um yeah. and they're um, receptive and doing something Totally. Well, and then the upside of all of this is that you were introduced to dance. I also love uh, the same point that you made of this idea of thinking of dance as a language, which like when you said that, I was thinking about it and I'm like, I mean, it is, you know, like even when we think of like interpretive dancing or maybe not even interpretive dancing, but I don't know all the correct terminologies of dancing. But, you know, when you watch like you have like the really intense music playing and like the people are doing these super dramatic moves and you're like, holy shit, like, (laughs) oh my God, something's happening right now. Like I can feel it in my soul. Like that is a language. Yeah, absolutely. That's so cool. I love thinking of it that way. And I also feel like when you think of it culturally um, in different parts of the country, dance is like such a huge thing for so many cultures and i feel like it it does represent like a language like this is who we are this is like this is us and we can communicate that through our moves and our costumes and our colors and our clothing and the way that we interact with other people while we're while we're dancing like it it really is a language and i i love that i've like want to think of that from now on when I'm in the club twerking. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. <laughs> I haven't been to a club in like 10 years, but <laughs> just kidding. Um, uh, okay. Well, so then you left Princeton and yeah. you just, it was a can't stop, won't stop Miley Cyrus moment. So what happened next? You got yes. to U- UCLA? I went to, before I went there, I went to Loyola Marymount University um, to get my master's in education because I, when I was in high school, I received the um, Bill Gates, um, Gates Millennium Scholarship. And so, so cool. that would give, it allowed me um, a scholarship to pursue seven different areas in and like a master's program. So they would pay for like a master's and maybe a doctorate, but it had to be in seven specific areas. And one of those areas was education. Mm -hmm. So when I was coming out of college undergraduate, I felt very passionate about dance. I felt like I have to pursue this and I had to figure out a way how. I was absolutely frightened though. I was like frightened to death because I know, I know like I grew up living in a household where we live paycheck to paycheck. So mm-hmm. I was like, I'm, I like, I just went to Princeton and I'm spoiling, I, in my mind, I was like, I'm spoiling this experience. Why would I choose dance? Why couldn't yeah. I choose like engineering or something? <laughs> Why did I have to fall in love with this? <laughs> um, but I, um, this is kind of one area where like faith kind of like um, intertwined in because my whole senior year, I was very, very scared about like even taking the leap to pursue dance um, or how I would do it. And I felt like 
all that senior year, I call them God winks. So like different, you know, divine signs mm-hmm. where that was just saying like, basically, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to take the leap. And you can mm-hmm. go for the leap. Um, and so I decided I had to be strategic, though, right? Be strate- I was also strategic in taking my leap. So I decided that I wanted to move back to the LA area um, to be closer to my family. And in order, I knew that there was like um, bubbles of dance happening in different parts of LA. Um, and one of the bubbles at dance that was happening was in near like the west side. Um, there were workshops a lot that were hosted by this group called No One Art House. Um, and it was at, they would host their workshops at the University of Loyola Marymount. And mm-hmm. so I figured, okay, if I can apply to Loyola Marymount to get my master's degree in education because I have the scholarship that would give me some money to be in LA and to dance. And so that's what I did. I went, I was like a professional student um, getting like using my scholarship to learn and to have education, but also to help me to have the space to dance and train um, and learn about the dance scene in Los Angeles. So that's what I first did out of college. And so, so you went from Princeton where you got like your undergrad and then you mm-hmm. went to Loyola Marymount. Was that like a mass? You said that was a master's? It was a master's or? in education. Education. Okay. Such a busy lady. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had like taken my education a little bit more seriously, but I was focusing on the social aspect a little <laughs> more than the educational aspect. But, you know, now I have a podcast where I'm just social all the time. So maybe it worked out. <laughs> okay so then you were dancing in LA you're going to Loyola Marymount Mm -hmm. and then you made your way to UCLA yes I made my made my way to UCLA um I applied I think obviously during some time during my program at Loyola Marymount so I could in you know the usual cycle you apply like a year ahead um and I Originally, I was going to apply to different schools, um, multiple schools around, like, I was okay with leaving LA at first, um, but after time went on, both because I, like, wanted to stay near family, and then I also found, like, this really amazing, cool church community that Mm -hmm. I loved, um, which was, like, in the middle of Hollywood, and we're all young creatives um, that... Like I wanted to stay nearby for, mm-hmm. I decided that you know I think the best place for me to go would be UCLA, and it also felt like it um, was a program that would consider all my interests as like an interdisciplinary artist who's mm-hmm. not just doing dance, but is doing looking at like experimental music, theater, art, just theater, and faith and spirituality. Like it felt like the right program to combine all those interests. Um, and I applied and I ended up getting in, um, and that was in, I think it was 2017 was my first year at, in my MFA program there. So And I loved it. Cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was a good experience. It was different than Princeton. It was different. I, you know, I mean, at that time I, I mean, I had, I made some really great friendships that are like really great, um, people there who I still talk to now. Um, but in addition, it was like, I don't know, it's just wonderful not having to write papers <laughs> all the time. I bet. Like, it was really cool just being able to explore, 
like this one aspect of my world of like Mm -hmm. digging deeper into choreography and focusing on or like learning how to shape myself better as a choreographer um, mm-hmm. and to really sharpen my school, my, sorry, sharpen my skill set, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and yeah, it was, it was fun. I, I like enjoyed, I enjoyed every minute of the program itself, you know? And you, yeah. while you were there and attending it, you had one major project you're working on, right? Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. So that project is called Testimony and it has been, it has different iterations. Like I even applied to UCLA with a solo that is in that work, in my work still now. Like I was going into UCLA thinking this is a project I want to work on. Like I know what it is. I I just need support to make Mm it. Right. And so now fast forward, Testimony is a work that is go um let me collect my thoughts <laughs> yeah take a breather a glass of water like we're right, ready yeah, for I'm it like, we're, this is when i do my asmr wine <laughs> pour oh yeah we're here for it okay so testimony is this dance and music experience right that is really centered around these community of black women and their journeys of trauma through trauma and healing and faith right it is going to premiere in women's history month 2022 so not too far from now i'm pretty excited about it and like in this work now it um where you'll like an audience member can expect to see two dance films one is called i tried so hard for you the other dance film is called there's a river and then we have a short album that we that my cast has been um they so excellently made collaboratively together and different premiere events that will happen throughout women's history month to like celebrate womanhood and blackness and healing and you know faith and spirituality so i'm excited about it but it didn't start there like it did not start as when i originally went into my program I had only one of the dance films in mind, which is called mm-hmm. There's a River, but it wasn't going to be a film. It was going to be a live piece. And I had, I was set to do it in April, 2020. I was going to perform mm-hmm. and have the big concert and the big culmination of my work. Mm-hmm. And then literally <laughs> it was a month. <laughs> I wonder what happened next. (laughs) Yeah, it was literally just a month before, um, month before my show, the world shut down and it was wild. I remember having meetings with my advisor and he kind of like trying to prepare me for what might happen. And he was like, Tula, I don't know. We hear about this virus. It may mean that like you can't do your show into the fall, which is what we thought (laughs) Little do we know. (laughs) He's like, two weeks from now. It'll only be delayed two weeks. (laughs) Yeah, we thought it was that. And then, and so I think like many other people in the performing arts industry, we all kind of was like, okay, we'll postpone the show for now. And we expect that in some weeks we'll be able to do it. Or, okay, some more weeks we'll be able to do it. Okay, how about, like, the next season? Okay, maybe that's not, you know? And then it kind of was in this perpetual, like, limbo space. And that was incredibly difficult, you know? 
and disappointing i bet yeah you're like yeah. so ready for freaking go time and you're like yeah. i'm sorry excuse me <laughs> like, yeah absolutely what? and you know i never i i feel very passionate about like live performances like i feel like there's a magic in oh, the yeah. room that happens when you're mm -hmm. in a live performance like i don't know it hits your heart differently like you mm -hmm. feel things differently and so i was like adamant i felt like i was called just to do live things <laughs> and so COVID hitting like really just shifted my whole view of myself as an artist and I had to be like okay I prayed a lot about like um am I like god am I really supposed to be doing this type of work like is this what I'm supposed to be doing maybe I should move into dance films a little bit more or into filming a little bit more um and it, I took some time around that because I really, I felt so strongly that I, before that I was only supposed to be doing, or only really wanted to do live work. Um, but something that I realized in the process of COVID, which I'm actually glad for now, is that at least in the dance, in, in the concert dance industry, so like when you imagine you go to sit in, go to a theater space to sit down and watch a, a dance show, that's kind mm -hmm. of like the world I'm in. Mm -hmm. In that industry, we historically have not done a very good job of capturing the work that we do, you mm -hmm. know? So people kind of have to go and watch live and then that performance is gone forever, you know? Right. Like there's not a place or a way necessarily for a lot of these shows for people to come and watch it again in the future. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that like it's, and then it's, um, I don't think it should be that way. And I know that there's younger choreographers like in my generation are a little bit above me who are thinking the same things, who are thinking about how can we um, film our live works differently? How can we film them in a way that makes it intriguing for people to watch and that they are excited to watch it, you know, and it's not just one camera at one view yeah. from so far away. You know? I know what you mean. Right? Um, and so I was really inspired by um, Beyonce's Homecoming. Uh -huh. If you've seen Homecoming, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's like a great example of it like, is. how can you film live performance in a way that like, makes people feel like they were there. Uh -huh. And they were excited to watch who else Rihanna came, came out with her Savage Fenty concert oh. in 2020. Another great example. <laughs> right? I worked for a textile fashion group, which is the parent company of Savage X Fenty. And so um, we got the day off early to go home Ooh. and pop bottles and watch it on Amazon Prime. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my That's God. I was amazing. sitting on my couch just like pumped. It was great. It was great. Yeah. And, you know, so I feel like the one one of the silver linings that COVID brought for me is that it expanded the way I thought of myself as an artist. And it made me realize that, yes, I can still be passionate about live work, but I can think about how. I can bring live work to larger audiences like across the world and how I can use film as a way to do it um, and how I can be inspired by people like Beyonce or Rihanna and and to use the different film techniques to create a dance show or mm -hmm. like a dance experience for people who may not traditionally go to a theater to sit down and watch dance, but maybe mm -hmm. they'll watch it on, you know, like this really cool film thing on YouTube, you know, totally. or where we put it. So mm -hmm. that's one of the silver linings in this journey of trying to produce this concert throughout COVID. So when 
so now that it, March or Women's History Month is around the corner and you're finally going to yeah. be able to do this, are is it through UCLA still? Or oh, yeah. How does that no. – yeah. So what they were just <laughs> like, okay, you've graduated, <laughs> but like your show's not over. We'll hold on till the till the pandemic ends? Yeah, good. That's a great question. So I – we at UCLA – for an MFA program, at least in our program, traditionally you're supposed to do a big final concert um, with showing your work and then you would get these your feedback from your committee members and that would be the thing that was like usher you into graduation. God. And because it was kind of like, you know, no fault of our own, the cohort that I graduated with, um, that especially particularly my cohort because it was like I, you know, I was literally weeks away and it everything got pulled from under me. So they were kind enough to allow me to do a kind of a pitch of my work mm -hmm. um, at the end because I did end up staying a semester longer than mm -hmm. I was supposed to, hoping, you know, that it was if we thought that we might be able to perform in the fall and then we learned COVID was just not having it. It's never ending. <laughs> now they're saying it's going to be like four more years. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I have not heard that though. Made my heart sink a little. <laughs> Don't hear it from me. I <laughs> I probably got that from TikTok. Let's be real. <laughs> yeah. So so we I did. We expected that I was gonna get another chance to perform the show. It didn't happen that way. And so they decided that instead of having me like in just like continue to take another semester, another semester, continue my work, like that was unfair. For me you know like mm -hmm. to elongate my program that long um and so they allowed me to present my work as like a pitch deck basically i gave mm -hmm. them all the ideas of what the work was supposed to be i put together old rehearsal footage that we had pre-covid and i was also working a little bit in covid um, remotely like so via zoom or my dancers would like i would send something and then my dancers would do it themselves and take a video so I would compile those together and try to give my committee members um, the best sense of what I was trying to make um, and so I ended up graduating they approved that I ended up graduating in the fall of 2020 nice so now it's no longer a part of mm -hmm. UCLA um, I am producing it by well like myself but also a team of collaborators there's like so many collaborators that have made this thing happen like one i want to shout out her name is naima patterson she is a co-choreographer co-director for one of the dance films in the work and also just been such a helpful you know um collaborator um you know uh counterpart if that's the word to help the show not die and mm -hmm. to help us move forward and to produce what we will see, help partly what we'll see in Women's History Month 2020. Heck yeah. You know, I'm looking right now. You have like tw 20 people. I mean, 17, <laughs> 15 to 17, I'd say at least. Yeah, it's a lot. There's a lot of people who worked on this show. Um, there's like my dancers who. OK, so let's see. Ah, there's just there's so many people to shout you want me out. To list them? We've got Marcus we, Brown Jr., Jasmine yeah. Stanley, Leanna Bremond, Marcus Norris, Genesis Jackson, Scarlett Leone, Asia Dessert. Mm-hmm. 
Vilkis Kalunga, yes. Jordan, who is <laughs> Thank a you music for stepping duo. in there. <laughs> um, Elsie Dartalis, Anna Rodriguez, Kiala, I recall her Kitty, Watson Whedon, um, Trinice Ward, Sydney Wilmore, Aminato Diop, Ivy Huge, um, Lizette Mathos, Naya Jen Wright, Margaret Koldinger, Free Hester, Robert Aaron Collins, Kwaja Hadi, Spencer Price, Elizabeth Smith, Alexis Tung, um, David Strong, Mayla Leonard Strong, Salilo Mal, Robert Pickett, as well as we have just onboarded Juanita, who is going to be our new, um, our live album engineer. So, I mean, among these people, they're just fantastic people. Like Marcus Norris made, composed the music for one of the dance film and then half the music for the other dance film. Jordan's the other composers. Fantastic work. Like I am mind blown by the music that they made. Anna Rodriguez is one of the songwriters who made two songs in the album. And like, I am just blown away by her talent, you know? So this work really was made collaboratively like mm-hmm. I although I conceive the larger experience of it and how things would map together um and you know like the piece called there's a river I was working on even before I started my MFA program but like it was truly made in collaboration with these women with these folks of color with like these individuals who helped to bring it alive because god knows I could not have done this alone <laughs> No, a village, a whole village <laughs> lined took, up yes. and helped make this happen. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So cool. Well, I watched the trailer and it was absolutely beautiful. So excited for you that this finally gets to be out in the world. I hope that there'll be tickets and we can go. I don't absolutely. know if that's even a thing. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I'm like, here I am. Yes, we're asking. So we have a, a landing page, you know, a website up mm-hmm. where people can sign up to make sure they don't miss it. Yes. And it's like the shorthand is bit.ly slash testimony 2022. Um, and people can go there, sign up. Most of the events are actually going to be free. So we, that oh, was cool. important for, um, I think, me and a lot of people in the show that like people have access to it. And mm-hmm. so we'll probably just have... Um, donation base if people mm-hmm. want to donate there'll be a way mm-hmm. for people to support via donation but um, we wanted to have people have access you know yeah accessibility yeah well I'll definitely be posting all the links in the podcast show notes as well Thank as you. on Instagram and on the website and as it gets closer I'll do a bunch of reminders that it's coming <laughs> up uh, because the other portion of my podcast is women's history so we're yeah. all in line with women's history month and definitely would love to help spread the word um and hopefully come with some friends and watch yeah. your show that would be amazing oh we would love that I so appreciate it yeah we are not officially releasing what the uh premiere events are going to be to people yet we're still like in we want to make sure it looks it's good and but i'm excited (laughs) i'm excited to say the least i'm excited to share it with the world in the coming like weeks and you know maybe a month or two or so yeah i finger i'm not even gonna say it yes (laughs) yes in this women's history month 2022 it is on it is it's on So just a couple more things I wanted to chat with you about uh, because I know that spirituality is a huge part of your life, your dancing, your choreography. I know there's like a major intersection there 
for you and like your passion with the two things and how you're able to kind of merge them into one. And when I was reading your interview, there was a quote that you had written that just like struck me. It just like called to me. I want to read it for the listeners and then just kind of have you elaborate a little bit on this. So you'd said in your interview, quote, my utmost desire as an artist who follows Jesus is to forcefully push against the narratives of fear, shame, condemnation, and discrimination that has unfortunately been used throughout the history of Christianity when teaching or speaking about faith. Yes. And I love this quote because I feel like for this exact reason, what you just described here has been a major influence in my life to kind of like hesitate on spirituality like I I um mentioned earlier that I I don't actually know if I mentioned this earlier but I went to Catholic schools my whole life Mm. from kindergarten till the day I graduated college or high school so like 15 years or however long that is and um There were things that I learned in that experience that just like did not resonate with me. Things that like didn't feel really right, didn't feel aligned. And like from a young age, I felt like I caught on to think like, I'm not sure about this. And so as I grew up, it's been really difficult for me to like reconnect with religion, I guess, as like an organization, because that experience I had my whole life there were things that I just didn't feel made sense or at least didn't align with like how I just naturally felt as a child. You know how kids are so innocent and they just, they don't know anything from anything else and they just love everybody. And like, I remember being young and feeling like, like here's a good example, which I've also probably said this a thousand times on the podcast, but I remember being like in third grade, maybe seven years old and being in a line outside of the church at my school and being mm-hmm. told by the teacher that we all had to go inside the school or the church and confess our sins. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in line being like, oh, my God, what am I going to say? Yeah. And like not knowing like what to say. And then like yeah. as like the kids went in and I was getting closer to the front of the line, like this anxiety of like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I have to think up something like what am I going to say? I don't know what sins I've committed. And like feeling really like. Like, I was going to the principal's office. I'm in trouble. I have to tell somebody that it did something bad. But I can't think of anything. I'm seven years old. What do I, what did I talk back to my sister? Like, I don't know what the heck I said. And then there was this option that they really urged you to go into the booth with the priest face to face. Mm. And you'd like Mm -hmm. stare at him and like have to hold hands while you like confessed your sins into his eyeballs. And I was like, heck no, I'm not doing that. So I was like one of the only kids that like went behind the screen, and like spoke to him (laughs) through the wall. I was intimidated. I was scared. And like, for whatever reason that like really kind of like scarred me as a child. And I like carried that for a long time. Um, and I don't, there are some other things that have happened in other age groups of my, my schooling system in in the Catholic church, but it's just like, it's, I think like what you said in that quote is so telling of how I felt like there, this narrative of that I should feel shameful for something I've done or afraid to confess it to the priest, or I'm going to be in trouble now or judged or whatever the case may be. And so that was so like hit me right in the heart when I read that quote. And I'm just so curious, like what that quote means to you and like as a whole, like God, religion, spirituality, like what that means to you and how you incorporate that into your choreography. 
Absolutely. So I have so many thoughts to start. First off is I, um, I completely empathize with you and I feel like I've had similar experiences and this is why it's so passionate to me. Um, because I, though I grew up in a like community that like a really great faith community when I was younger, when I went to college, I was suddenly introduced into a faith community that for me very much felt like it was about you have to do xyz to be able to talk to god you have to be x do xyz to for god to be able to love you and to be able to be in his presence and on the one hand i never experienced that growing up like i grew up in churches you know but it it had a profound effect on me that i have like i feel like i'm much better now but it took many many years to unwork that like that that like quote unquote theology of working to have God's love and God's presence in your life, you know? And I know how much, how painful it is to feel that and to feel that like fear, like to relate to God in fear. It's horrible. It's like, it is not fun at all. Like having shame, it's crippling. It is truly crippling. And I, I say that I say that statement because the reality is that like not only like people ex like you, I, I have friends who've experienced like communities of churches who were not teaching necessarily the best, in my opinion, like the best theology. Um, and I have we see through history like Christianity, the reality is in the, United, in the United States, the history of the Christianity was that it was taught to black people through slavery. You know, there is like Christianity was tied with imperialism. Like it has a nasty, bloody history. And I think to be for me to be someone who follows God, like you can't ignore that. You have to speak up against it or speak about speak out against it, you know, because and I get really passionate about it because in after I after I had that experience in college, um, I when I had another somehow I like I kind of like took a step away from the church community for a while because of how hurt I felt um, and just confused I felt and like it it just was not good in my in my perspective um, and I had someone who my senior year who asked me, she was like, oh, um, her name was Katie. And she, I think of her like as a saving grace because she invited me in. Her husband was like the past, the, the, like the lead, the new leader. They brought in a new, um, church community or like church leader for that campus. Um, and they were really great people. And one thing that she really taught me was that like, you know, just talk to God, like, just like, Talk to, talking to God doesn't have to be like, oh, Lord, like the fanciest prayer <laughs> is literally like, God, hey, what's up? <laughs> like, I've been going through this thing. And I felt like after like through that was a start, her introducing me to that, like, of like, it's not about, well, let's see. That was kind of the start for me to reconsider what I learned. Mm -hmm. And it was a start of me to reconsider that, like, it's not about me going to seek the thoughts and opinions of someone who is, quote, unquote, um, 
a religious leader and what they think about all these topics. It's about me having a direct relationship and asking God to show up for me and to show me what he wants me to do, you know, mm -hmm. and in, I felt like as I, after I went to college, I had an experience where I felt like I was having, you know, those God winks, like they were happening a lot. And I was like, what in the world is happening? But I felt like through that experience, like, um, God, for me was showing me that like it truly truly is not about the things quote unquote you do like i felt like he was sharing tearing with me i don't need any of that like i just want you to be with me and that's it and i will help you walk each way and i felt like i learned grace for the first time mm -hmm. and learned that it really is just about a spiritual experience like for me being a christian is about having a everyday spiritual experience and a spiritual encounter with the spirit of God and learning how to navigate um, through that. And that experience is so different from like, it's the furthest thing away from you have to do X, Y, Z mm -hmm. and you have to, um, you know, you can't do this or you can't do this. That's like nothing to do that has not been my experience now walking with God and walking with Jesus. And so I feel very passionate because I've experienced myself the pain mm -hmm. that comes from like being taught with fear and being taught with shame and then have learned and saw um like god encounter me on the other side of like what it means to walk with him without all of that and that that is not what it means to be in relationship with him mm -hmm. um our god so yeah yeah i know and i think that's like what you said perfectly like what you were describing to me is like that structure that discipline that like yeah agenda of x y and z in this order yeah it like it takes away the beauty of the connection and the yeah. uh relationship i guess because you're trying to hit all the milestones almost yeah. and if you skipped one or you failed at one you're like oh no i have to go back to the beginning and uh like you just feel it does something and like it, yeah. it just takes away that beauty in what the relationship should be just naturally organically without yeah. all these like requirements i guess yeah yeah absolutely absolutely yeah so and without how... the like no go ahead <laughs> i was gonna say without the like idea that like you have to be in in te again the teaching of christianity that has taught people that like if you identify a certain way then you can't be with god or if you mm. um like if you identify as lgbtqi you can't be with god and i think that's not true at all you know i personally think that mm -hmm. i believe that god is bigger than the bigotry yeah and homophobia and like he can walk with people in extraordinary ways mm -hmm. and so i feel passionate about that and i feel passionate that in my work i try to i try to find ways to speak about it i try to like relate it to just the everyday like again the everyday experience like how if I'm creating a piece and there's a woman in this in this in this work, or I'm trying to portray a woman, how would that woman's fate journey be? Mm -hmm. um, and and sharing all of that within the work, um, I often like I pray a lot when I'm creating work, um, and I pray that like people just have a sense of freedom when they watch it, that they feel connected in some way. Um, and peace when they watch it yes 
I will stop talking because I talk so much. I told you, you could talk for 10 hours if you want. (laughs) This is your episode. That's how I think of it. It's your time to talk, do the talking. I'm just kind of here as the the host and the narrator. (laughs) Um, That's really awesome, though. Like, I always like to talk to people, lots of different people about religion because... I always think it's just interesting of hearing people's experiences, what they've gone through, what they've seen, and, you know, the path they took on their own. Because as children, with all things in life, you know, we just do what is in our environment, what we're told to do, what our families have done, what where we live, uh, what school we went into. You're just That's just part of being a kid. You just grow up in whatever is provided. But then as yeah. you get older, you really have this opportunity to reflect and think and evaluate and kind of see what your options are and then decide like what makes the most sense for you. Yeah. And I love that because everybody kind of has their own path. And that's the first time where you get to really have that autonomy of like, this is me and this is what connects with me. But at that point, you've already had so many experiences. And so you really get to make that decision from a really educated place. And I just love seeing like what that looks like for other people. And when you you talked so much about God in your dance and I was like, wow, that's such an interesting thing. Like, yeah, that was just so it stood out to me. And I was like, I need to know more about this. Like, yeah, how does that work? Yeah, you know what? Too, I feel like I've I've talked about such like heady, like like big picture things, but like mm-hmm. more specific. Like when I was in college, I had the experience. So, um, I shared how I was so hurt about like the how the community, you know, just like the experience I was at at Princeton, and and how it felt like it wasn't made for me. And I got into advocacy, and I got very passionate, um, about. I decided that my in the summer between my junior and senior year, um, I decided to apply for a it was like a grant that they had for college for students on the campus. And you I said I wanted to study African-American choreographers in New York City and see how they are are passing down histories, you know, Um, and I was excited. So I was trying to figure out how I can make advocacy into my work, which I'm still excited about that work, too. but I remember going into that summer with like that, just that on my mind. And and I was encountered by some like things I did not expect. And so going back to those God winks, I felt like I kept seeing different like signs, you know, mm-hmm. like people's um, pointing out in strange ways or um, strange occurrences that made me feel like, you know what? I realized like I I felt like God was showing me that in reality, even though I'm pursuing this advocacy underneath it all is I'm really wounded. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time I noticed that or I realized that. And it was the first time that I realized that like it is beautiful to pursue advocacy work. But like I can't I felt like God was showing me that I have to do it in a pace in a place of peace or I for me personally mm-hmm. I needed to find a way to do it in a, a place of peace because I was just really wounded um and that that like epiphany changed the entire way I went into my senior year that it was the first scene my first time on the campus I was I was kind of at peace I was like at peace about that part of my experience at Princeton mm-hmm. um and it felt like 
so strange to for me it felt like definitely had to be god because that was the most tumultuous year in terms of race relations at princeton mm -hmm. my senior year it was a year i believe um i believe freddie gray had died that year i feel that there was another um it might have been i think it might have been trayvon martin who was killed that year um or the year prior so it was like a lot that was going on in that time and somehow i was at peace you know and so that felt significant for mm -hmm. me and so it felt like all right and then after that experience i had the like the god wings of like or different ways like i would watch something and it would say it'll be okay or like i would um just have like a really strange feeling of peace in my heart that it would be okay even though i had such fear about pursuing dance there is these moments where I would feel like extraordinary peace that I can move forward and to pursue it. Um, so those are like two more technical things. And then when I went to, I when I moved to LA, I told you like I found this community of this church community. Um, I started as a church called One Church, where now it's called the Potter's House at One LA. And it was in the midst of Hollywood, right off of Melrose and La Brea, I think it is. Um, and so it's a lot of, a lot of young millennials, mm -hmm. folks of color going there, um, the non-traditional quote unquote people you would think of church. And it was amazing. And I joined their um, dance ministry. And at the time, a lot of people in their dance ministry were people who were actually pursuing dance as like mm -hmm. a career. So it was really cool being with other people who are pursuing professional dance or people who are actually like making their ways as professional dancers and choreographers. Um, and I remember that being a space where I felt like, oh, I, I experienced a new thing when it came to, to how faith and dance could meet. Like mm -hmm. I remember walking into the very first time I went to their workshop, like they had an intro workshop and I remember I was like bombarded by these thoughts. Like, I'm not good enough. I can't, mm -hmm. I shouldn't be here. Like I, I like, I'm not worthy enough, quote unquote, you know, I'm not quote unquote good enough. Cause I was still dealing with like unpacking the idea of legalism. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I remember they taught a dance and we each would count, go up. And um, I think the song was like, it said something around the lines, like great is your love for me. Um, I can't remember the full song, but like, I remember getting up to dance and I went through the song and at the end of it, I broke down in tears, crying. I don't, I didn't know these people. I just, I was like, I like was literally on the floor crying at the end of like finishing the last phrase and the dance. And I was like, what in the world is happening to me? Uh -huh. And I remember these went the um, two, I think maybe one or two people came over and they started praying over me and like got encouraged me and like put and stood me up and um was, and I was sharing like, I'm having all these feelings of like, I can't be here. And they just kind of like dispelled all those thoughts. And I remember, um walking into many different rehearsals with the ministry and like walking in and it just felt different. Like it felt like, you know, it just felt different. You walk into yeah. the room and it felt like, I don't know, like there is, you know, the spiritual presence in this room with mm -hmm. us. And it felt like the, 
I guess the biggest way I can describe it is like my heart felt at such peace. I felt like fulfilled. I felt cared for. Mm-hmm. Like all those feelings was what I felt when I walked into these in these rooms um, with that group. And I felt like that was like literally felt like Jesus was in the room with us. Like his spirit was in the room with us. And I, I remember like um, encountering other people who I felt like they um, – like such spiritually powerful people, like they're my age. I never experienced anything like this. Like they would like pray. Like I feel like, you know, in the stories in the Bible where it talks about like people casting out demons, if anyone could do it, I feel like these people could do it. Like literally, I'm not even joking. And I was like, whoa, this is amazing. That is So, so cool. It was it that really shaped my life and it really showed me that mm-hmm. like, oh, there's a whole nother world into how faith or my spirituality with Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit can affect dance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like um, for context, this is not the only there's other religions and forms that like use dance as prayer. Mm-hmm. Right. So like dance and spirituality is like something that can be you think of like the black church and historical black church do you have the praise dances right there is um spiritual groups like in afro brazil afro brazilian groups um i think the religion please don't i hope i don't butcher it i think it's candomblé they are they practice physical dancing as also a way that is intertwined with mm-hmm. their spirituality, right? You see that in the um, Afro Latinidad and different areas of the of of the Caribbean, right? Um, mm-hmm. In Cuba, in Cuba, right? That there is this practice of of dance and spirituality, and so it makes me like having that experience at my church, and then also learning just through my journey as a professor about these different dance forms mm-hmm. that also have connected spirituality with it makes me realize oh they're just obviously like (laughs) if you think of it in a non-western way like these things can be so intimately twined and they can be really powerful um yes that is that hopefully that makes sense (laughs) totally well one other thought i was having is that like when you think about it there aren't a lot of human activities other than dance where mm-hmm. large groups of people are together doing the same thing as a yeah. natural organic response to like music. Yeah. And yeah. it's a very human experience where yeah. everybody that's there lots of times even if we're just talking about a regular concert like nobody knows each other but everybody's kind of congregating as one to just like let the body and the energy just like flow through them and it turns into this like the whole room can feel it and the whole room's vibing and it's just like it really is a spiritual experience and so whether it's you know at a concert venue or in a church or you know they sometimes have um like a rave like even a rave I've never Mm -hmm. been to a rave but geez I've seen videos of that and I'm like 
I feel like that's like an out of body experience. Like, <laughs> I, I can't even imagine. Like, I feel like you'd have like this crazy, like psychedelic, like what is happening, you know? Yeah. And it, it's really magical. I feel like, and it kind of goes back to other cultures in history where people did congregate and there was drums and dancing and like magic was happening. <laughs> like, yeah. just like how you said, if anybody can like get rid of the demons, it was that group in the church. Cause I'm telling yeah. you, I think something magical really does happen when you yeah. get the energy and the vibes and the vibrations happening with lots of people that have the same interests in, in mind. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So cool. Wow. Well, what a freaking wild <laughs> experience. Like, yeah. <laughs> So cool and like just such a awesome way to like live your life. Like it just there's just so much beauty and positivity and upbeatness that you get to be participating in like all the time. You know, yeah. it's such a yeah. beautiful thing. Like so much so many people in the world sit at a computer and stare at a screen all day. And I mean, we're all making money and paying the bills, but the art and the, you know, the creativity side of what's out there and what's available it's just such a blessing for the people that find it or have passions for it and can actually really pursue that in their life i'm i can only imagine just like how good that feels all the time <laughs> yeah yeah and it i mean it's not it's not without its ups and downs totally you know? <laughs> like i believe it hard, it's hard <laughs> i believe it yeah um but it is and there are moments like even now i'm realizing i have to you know, you get so caught up in the like routine of it all and like having to make the work to be a professional that like mm -hmm. you can, it can be easy and it has been easy for me to like lose the joy sometimes. And so oh, yeah. there are definitely moments where I have to like kind of like detox and like remember why I'm doing this and like where is my first love in this and, mm -hmm. and tune back into that. Totally. Yeah. Well, I we're getting close to the end here, and you know I have one last question for you. What does sisterhood mean to you? I think for me it means support. It means that, um, I mean, I grew up around strong women, independent women, women who, like, you can truly lean on and rely on. And for me, seeing such strong women, I, and being, you know, raised to be a strong woman myself, I've learned how, that having places that are safe for me and having places where I can let down my strength sometimes and not have to be the one that everyone comes to is so important. And when I think of the people who are able to create safe spaces for me to do that, to have that support, to let down my guard, to relax, to take a breath, it's the sisters, the whether blood are also non-blood but like family who become family um are non-family who become family right it's them the women who have the strength to hold my strength and so that's the what i think of i'm grateful i think of grateful to god for the people the women in my life who um can support me and you know help me to let down <laughs> down my guard when i need to that's what I think of. I love it. So beautiful. Love it, love it, love it, love it. It's so amazing to hear everybody's different perspectives on what does sisterhood mean to you. Well, 
before we sign off, I want you to tell the audience like how we can stay in touch with you. Like everybody wants to be in the loop to know when testimony is out in the world. And I don't know if you have social media or a website or anything like that, but plug all the things. Absolutely. So I am first going to share for testimony. You can go to bit.ly slash testimony 2022 um, to like find out all the things. But you can also go to my social media. I'm on Instagram, on TikTok, on what do I have? Facebook, all under the handle tula.b.strong. So you can find me there. Um, and what else? You also can go to my website at www.tulabestrong.com. So everything basically under my name. Um, and you can find about test- find out more about testimony also on my social media handles as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. What a pleasure. I knew this was going to be a great convo. It absolutely was. And uh, just so thankful for coming on and chatting with me and the audience and sharing your story and just like all your knowledge, like just loved everything, every single thing about this convo. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So grateful to be here. What a beautiful episode. Thank you guys again so much for listening to Mimosa Sisterhood Podcast. I hope you enjoyed learning so much about Tula Be Strong, everything that she has learned and experienced in her lifetime, and I hope you felt really inspired by her incredible, beautiful perspective on life and spirituality. If you can think of one person in your world that would really love this episode or would be really impacted by the themes that we discussed, please send this to them, shoot it to them via email, send it in a text, or share my social media posts on your feed. Sharing is caring and it is the best way to spread the word about this podcast and to introduce it to people that currently don't know that we exist but would really, really, really love to find us. I hope you guys have an incredible holiday month and I will see you next week. Bye.